What is up, guys? It is the Blue Bloods here coming at y'all with another episode of our Pac-12 and 31 Days episodes. We are joined by the managing editor of Beaver's Edge, part of the Rival Sports Network, one of my favorite networks to check out all things college football on there. And Oregon football insider Brendan Slaughter is joining us today. And I just want to say I appreciate you jumping on the show, man. Of course, Zach. Uh, definitely looking forward to talking some Oregon State ball with you and uh, definitely excited to uh, just ge- generally uh, get to know you guys a little bit. This is a cool deal you guys are doing. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Yeah, we got a we got a strong SEC base with myself being an Auburn grad, my co-host Very being cool. LSU guy. So you know how them SEC fans are. Very close-minded. So we had to expose them to the entire country because they don't stay up late for those Pac-12 after dark games. Yeah, you know, sometimes the Pac-12's got to be willing to, you know, put on a good enough product for them to stay up late at night. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I totally uh, totally get it, and hopefully I can uh, turn a few uh, SEC minds uh, to, you know, a little good stuff on the West Coast. I, I love it. I love it. But we got we to gotta start with, you know, the decision of the Pac-12 in general. August 11th was the day Larry Scott, no longer the commissioner, um, announced that they're <laughs> exactly, exactly announced that they're going to postpone the season. It was praised by some at the time. Once the SEC, ACC, Big Twelve actually played, a lot of people condemned his decision. Um, what was your initial reaction? And you know, we saw a lot of schools around the country fight back and or say, "Hey, we don't care if our conferences aren't playing; we're going to play somebody." Was Oregon State one of those schools? Yeah, you know, it was. It's interesting, Zach, because you know, as we've kind of seen with with coronavirus and you know this last year, everywhere in the United States was a little bit different. And you know, when you go back to August and specifically the schools in which you know the Pac-12 footprint, you know, Washington, California, Oregon, specifically, in August the situation wasn't necessarily, you know, to put it in perspective, like if the you know general population couldn't go out and eat, you know, go out to dinner, go out and eat. It was not all that shocking to hear at first that football was going to be pushed back. So, you know, it was one of those really weird things where they put out a schedule, came back, put out another one. It was very, you know, haphazardly. I felt kind of done. They kind of went back on several decisions. In hindsight, 2020, it probably was, you know, a decision they could have taken more time with. Do I think it was the wrong decision? Not necessarily because the West Coast hadn't quite figured out how they wanted to approach, you know, playing their athletes through coronavirus and, you know, rapid testing and all those things that were such a big deal, you know, back then. It was just very odd. And, you know, obviously it was a bummer to not be able to play 12 games for a lot of reasons. And, you know, some Pac-12 schools didn't even get, you know, six, let alone seven. So, a weird year, and more than anything, I know that just Oregon State fans and Pac-12 fans in general are super excited to have a full 12-game schedule. We here on the West Coast are, you know, finally starting to return to a sense of normalcy in our daily lives, finally. So, you know, I feel like we were just kind of a little behind the eight ball a little bit, but, you know, it, it is what it is, I guess, so to speak. Yeah, and I mean, he ends up reversing the decision, and luckily, I mean, we're here talking about Oregon State, might be, I think, one of the only teams, other than the two teams who went to the championship, to play six games. They actually got to play most of their games. Shock, I mean, there were some teams in the Pac-12 that played like three, four games, which was terrible. A two-and-four season, but a huge win, you know, against 
the Pac-12 champs that we saw end up winning. Um, did this season meet, exceed, or fall short of your pre- preseason expectations in terms of on-the-field performance? Yeah, you know, I, I think it fell short a little bit. But again, you know, just considering that if this was a full 12-game season and, you know, it wasn't, you know, smushed together, you know, thrown in there with, you know, the fact that, you know, you mentioned Oregon State, you know, was able to play most of their games, you know, a, a part of that was luck. And, a, you know, a big part of it was how, you know, rigorously they handled, you know, their coronavirus protocols. And, you know, that's something that, you know, various student athletes across the country, you know, really, really, you know, had to bunk, you know, hunker down, so to speak, and kind of be able to go through. So, you know, I, I think overall, Oregon State, it, it just, for a combination of factors, it wasn't, and it wasn't the year everyone thought it would be, but I think there were just a lot of attributing factors to that. I think the year, I think, you know, um, starting off Pac-12 play without having the, you know, critical non-conference games to open the year, you know, I think for a school like Oregon State, those kind of tune-up games, so to speak, are pretty important to developing confidence as the season goes. And, and again, the biggest thing, no fans. Zero. Zero fans. I mean, let me tell you, as, as someone who's, you know, covered college football for a while and, you know, been a college football fan my entire life, having an atmosphere that, you know, a high school game resembled, you know, I mean, it was, it was you know, something completely different to have these guys go play in a completely empty arena, you know, in most, you know, every game this year or stadium, excuse me. So you combine all those factors and it was just one of those, Years where the Beavers, I think, in a normal year, probably would have got to that six-win plateau as opposed to, you know, this year, which is still a success, in my opinion, because you did beat Oregon. And I think that's something that you can absolutely build off of because, you know, whether, you know, Oregon or Oregon State, you know, wanted that game more, it looked like Oregon State wanted it more. And, you know, to see that kind of a a grit and a fight from a team in, in a year that, you know, Nobody really knew what the postseason was going to look like, especially on the, you know, especially with the Pac-12, there was a very little chance of getting into the playoff anyway, if at all. So, you know, knowing, not knowing what bowls were going to be available, what was going to be, you know, on the docket, all those things, it was just a weird year. So it's almost one of the things where, as I'm looking in the timeline of Jonathan Smith, I look at it as, yeah, kind of one of those, you know, omission years, other than the fact that they beat Oregon. Yeah. Hey, the win of Oregon was huge, especially how Oregon started playing down the stretch. We saw, I feel like Oregon at times was very inconsistent last year. So that game was up for the taking and Oregon State jumped on it. But I want to move to the most important position on the field, quarterback. We saw two guys get pretty significant time in Chance Nolan and Tristan uh, Gevia. They both saw significant time. A true quarterback battle, based on what I've been reading, has been kind of brewing in Oregon State. Apparently, Chase Nolan shined in the spring game, and a lot of people really kind of want him to take that role over. But for you, what do each of these guys bring to the table, and who is your favorite for QB1? Yeah, I'm actually going to go ahead and toss a third name in there. That's Ben Goldbranson, a freshman from Newberry Park, California as well. Um, Tristan Jebbia was uh, on the shelf for spring as he had that you know season-ending hamstring injury uh, against Oregon and, you know, that took him out for all of spring, and, you know, that was, you know, quite a lengthy recovery. So good news is he will is or will is, and is expected to be back, 
you know, in the fold uh, shortly here in June or so. And that's going to be a big key because he's, you know, the most experienced and, you know, most well-versed quarterback in the offense. Um, I think he's going to get the first crack at it simply for being the guy, you know, the elder statesman, you know, so to speak. But Chance Nolan brings something different to the table with his mobility. He obviously started the final games of the year last year. Um, he could really, you know, found a little success with the deep ball as well. You know, he brings just something different to the table, kind of being that dual threat guy. Um, he struggled a little bit with accuracy in spring. There's a little more that I need that I'd like to see from him before I, you know, kind of anoint him the starter. And mostly because, in my opinion, the spring belonged to Ben Gobranson. Uh, you know, from where he was last year, which was basically third on the depth chart and only played one, basically one or one series against Arizona State last year in the finale. He came back this spring and just looked, you know, hands and feet better than where he was. And, you know, at times he was truth, truly splitting the one reps with Nolan. And to be honest, at a, at a point looked even a touch better. So I really think it's going to be a three-man race as fall camp opens. Uh, Jonathan Smith and offensive coordinator Brian Lindgren, they're notorious for waiting until the second or third week of fall camp, you know, before naming that starting guy. So it's going to be fun. And, you know, honestly, I can't wait for August just because, you know, each guy brings something to the table. You know, Jebby, as I mentioned, is kind of the elder statesman. He knows this is, you know, his, you know, big shot to still prove he can earn the job and win the job and win Oregon State games. Nolan comes to the table as kind of a dual threat, something we haven't seen, you know, at Oregon State in a little while. And then Branson, you know, just a super talented freshman. So lots of like from those uh, three guys. And I'm really looking forward to uh, fall camp. Yeah, I think regardless of whichever way you go, it's going to be as positive, and or it's, they're going to give Oregon State a chance to win because I think there's an opportunity in the Pac-12 to make a run this year for a lot of teams. So that quarterback position is I'm looking very, very closely for it. It's an important position. It's an important decision for head coach Jonathan Smith. Um, came to Corvallis 2018, 9-22, though, over his first three years. You could toss out this year if you want. Understandable, but you know, it's a lot of people that, from what I've been reading, consider this a make or break year or, or leading up to a make or break year for Smith here at Oregon State. What made him the guy for Oregon State coming in? And for you, what's the temperature on his seat right now in terms of this Oregon State head coaching job? Oh, it couldn't be colder. I, I promise you that. And that, that's simply for the fact that, you know, I mean, it, this you're right in the sense that it is a make or break year where the team is expected to make a bowl game. And I think that they will make a bowl game this year. And if they were to fall short of that, I think some heads would roll as far as potentially a coordinator getting let go, you know, but with that being said, in a lot of ways, Jonathan Smith was the prodigal son for Oregon state. I mean, you're talking about hiring a guy who was, you know, hand-trained by Chris Peterson at Washington for years and years before that at Boise State, and just so happened to be the quarterback of your team when you had arguably your best season ever. You know, with all due respect to the early Rose Bowl teams, you know, in the way, way early Rose Bowl teams, Oregon <laughs> State in the early 2000s with Jonathan Smith, you know, Fiesta Bowl, that was, uh, that was as good as it got. So in a lot of ways, Jonathan Smith has a lot of cachet, and also simply for the fact that, you know, I think Oregon State has maybe I'm not I'm not going to say learned a little bit but you know the grass isn't always greener right so like for a while you know as the 
you know, as I grew up through the Mike Riley, you know, late stages, Dennis Erickson through the Mike Riley era, towards the end of the Mike Riley era, there was kind of a, you know, uh, a discontent with being in the middle, right? Consistently getting to a bowl game every year, you know, sometimes five wins, sometimes six, seven, every now and again, you'd break over. And, you know, there was kind of that, how can Oregon State take the next step? Well, they tried and, and, and hired Gary Anderson. And, you know, we all know how, how that ended up. And it was a, um, uh, a rough, you know, what was it, two and a half years and, and a flame out. And, you know, to be honest, to answer your question of, you know, how long it's taken, in my opinion, Zach, you know, it's taken this long to climb out of the hole that Gary Anderson left them in. And when you, you know, take take 2020, you know, in or out, I thought kind of year three was going to be the year where we really started to see the ascension. I think, obviously, you know, going from 12 to six games had an effect on that. But, you know, simply put, I mean, just to kind of put it in perspective, when Jonathan Smith came in in 2018, Oregon State barely had enough scholarship defensive linemen to run a practice. Wow. Like. It, it, like, it, you know, the numbers in some areas weren't great. I mean, granted, you know, you talk about, you know, there was some talent there. You know, Isaiah Hodgins, FL, Artavis Pierce, NFL. There was some, there were some guys, but the team did not play well together. And, you know, it was a rough ending. And, you know, when Jonathan Smith came in, he really had to rebuild the team, you know, from scratch. I mean, defensive line needed so much help. The secondary needed so much help. And, you know, Brick by brick, JUCO recruit by JUCO recruit, recruiting class by recruiting class, you know, year three, year four is when you kind of start to see a rebuild turnover. You know, the old saying, year one, you lose big. Year two, you lose close. Year three, you win close. Year four, you win big. With 2020 being what it is, I kind of throw that out. So that kind of puts me in somewhere between this is that year three and year four where we should start to see Oregon State win consistently. You look at they've got some nice pieces on the recruiting trail. In recent years, there's obviously still a few areas of concern. But, you know, for the most part, I think Oregon State's heading in a great direction. And, you know, a lot of that's, you know, from the energy that Jonathan Smith, you know, brought back into the program. And, you know, it, uh, it's not an understatement to say that the program was at maybe, you know, top bottom three of like lowest points ever in December of 2017 or November of 2017 before Jonathan Smith got the job. So it's been a long road, but he's done it the right way. And, you know, it's been impressive to see along the way the nice wins. I mean, you're talking about, you know, the first Pac-12 win in however many years, his first year in Colorado on the road. You know, you talk about the Oregon win last year, numerous other, you know, little wins along the way. And it puts you in a position to where now guys finally start to believe in themselves and, that's what's got me most excited about this year is that, you know, Oregon State's taken their lumps. And at times it's been ugly and at times it's been difficult. But, you know, part of that process is, is you know, working through the rebuild of a program. And, you know, that's why I think, you know, Jonathan Smith is still the guy for sure. Absolutely. I always had to ask. I'm always curious because every school is different. You said they've learned their lesson about the grass is not always greener. As an Auburn guy, I mean, we just fired Gus Malzahn for the same reason. Just middle of the road guy. They were like, it's not what we want. We fired him. He's all Texas. Get rid of Herman. I mean, there's countless examples of teams firing coaches for just that middle of the road. So that's interesting that. Yeah, it was. It was more like along the I said more, I said totally true, but more along the lines of just like you know Mike Riley had been an Oregon State lifer, right? He was there from two thousand, you know, two separate stints, and there from 03 to fourteen, and 
obviously, you know, the Nebraska job opened and he took it. I don't mean to say that, you know, Mike Riley was fired by Oregon State by any means. But, you know, in my kind of opinion, I think kind of the seeds of, you know, oh, this is a big-time opportunity and, you know, maybe they're ready for something new here too. It just kind of worked together at the time. And, you know, I tell you that any Oregon State fan in hindsight would go, we would have taken Riley all through the Anderson years. <laughs> so, you know, it, it is interesting how those things, you know, tend to work sometimes. Absolutely. And, I mean, this next season there's a lot of promise, and it all started with the spring scrimmage that was back on May 8th that concluded a five-week spring practice period for Oregon State. I know the QB battle or QB debate was something raging on, but what were some other storylines throughout spring that you were paying close attention to, and what were your final takeaways from this spring as a whole? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, I was kind of just looking to see which guys popped, uh, just, you know, particularly younger guys. I mean, for the most part, Oregon State kept their veterans on the shelf. And, you know, that's kind of, in my opinion, what any smart coach does with, you know, guys that are pretty established. They, you know, take really light reps, work on the side. And, you know, there were, you know, with that being said, you know, some of the bigger names, particularly in the receiver core, were out. So, you know, there were opportunities for young guys to kind of step up on the offensive end for sure. And, you know, it was nice to see some new faces at running back. Obviously, Jamar Jefferson departed, drafted by, uh, you know, the Detroit Lions. Good luck to Jamar up there with, you know, Mr. Coach who likes to eat kneecaps. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's uh, all joking aside, wishing Jamar the best of luck up there. But uh, it was nice to kind of see what Oregon State's plan is going to be you know, without Jamar's, you know, obviously we know how special he was, you know, arguably on the Mount Rushmore of Oregon State backs. And, um, you know, we got to see B.J. Baylor kind of get to have his first run at running back. Uh, South Carolina transfer, Deshaun Fenwick uh, from your guys' neck of the woods a little bit. Uh, so definitely uh, got to look forward to see him as well. He had some nice plays. And, you know, overall, uh, on the other side of the ball, the – Improvement in team speed and tackling on defense was impressive to me. Not to say that the Beavers were bad in that area last year, but it's been a steady escalator of progression since Jonathan Smith got here, talking like 18, horrible, 19, a little bit better, 20, eh, and then, you know, this is the year where, again, I'm starting to see more communication, more leadership, more discipline, more guys kind of being like, this is how we do business. Guys saying, taking ownership of plays, excuse me, um, keeping, you know, just, uh, you know, kind of having that sense of wanting to be better and just overall noticing that, you know, as a whole, there's just a bunch of guys in this team that have, you know, with lack of better terms, had too much losing in their college careers. And that was maybe the most, um, you know, biggest takeaway for me in spring was, you know, getting and talking to these guys and hearing just how much all of them are like, you know, we've been hearing for years and years and years how potential, potential, potential. It's time to put it together. And, you know, that that was satisfying for me to see that, you know, the guys themselves are confident in themselves and they believe in themselves. And, you know, that's that, that's a big piece. Absolutely. And I mean, all this, so all the improvement you talk about has to start with recruiting. This 2021 cycle just wrapped up back in February, the 109th ranked class for Oregon State, but it really just had to do with the size of the class. Not a very big class. I believe it's only just a mere 11 high school guys. They also get five impact guys, I think, from the portal that should be able to make an immediate impact with this recent immediate one-time transfer rule passed by the NCAA 
what were the biggest positional needs for Oregon State? And who are some instant impact guys that you're looking at to make a impact immediately on campus? Yeah, you know, you hit the nail right on it there. You know, between Oregon State, uh, you know, having, um, you know, a handful of guys take advantage of the COVID rule and come back, and then additionally having um, just a low number of seniors and some of those seniors choosing to come back, as I mentioned, it just made for, you know, how the numbers, you know, kind of came together in the rebuild that this was a year that Jonathan Smith and his staff knew when they got here was going to be a small cycle. So, you know, they knew that going in and knew that, you know, they were going to have to kind of be real specific and real honed in on, you know, the guys that they wanted and couldn't really have, you know, misses, so to speak. So, you know, with little room for error, I kind of feel like they, they hit on their big targets. I mean, um, the guy that stands out the most to me right away, local product, Demir Collins, right here from Portland, Oregon, Jefferson High, getting one of the more marquee players from in-state is so huge because, you know, Oregon as a, as a state doesn't produce a ton of Division One players as is. And when they do, Oregon, Washington, you know, kind of come in and kind of get their, you know, get those relationships built early. And, you know, Oregon State necessarily hasn't had the on-the-field success to kind of win a bunch of those big battles. In the case of Demir Collins, this was a situation where a, new, a number of schools, big-time schools, were after him, and Oregon State was able to lock him down and keep him in state. And, you know, even with a, a pretty decent crop of talent at running back, I think he's a guy that will definitely get on the field, special teams, kick returner uh, in some aspect right away just because I think he's that electric with the ball. Um, another guy that, um, you know, could potentially have an impact um, early would be Amarian Fatamoy, simply for the fact that, he is at a position of need, which is that defensive line, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast. Oregon State still, 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 and you know, going on your other point as well, the position of need, defensive line. Between now and fall camp, I would say Oregon State's wish list is to try to get two defensive linemen from the transfer portal. So they are, I think right now they're okay, but they could be much better, and that's still kind of the one position group I've got I've got circled uh, right now and, you know, actually as of, you know, recording this podcast, they actually had a departure this morning and had a guy leave the um, leave for the transfer portal and Evan Bennett. So, you know, that's still a position group that's kind of been an Achilles heel for a couple years. And, you know, there's been enough internal improvement from the guys that are there that it's possible that there may be, you know, not a need, but more depth would be really crucial. Right. And, you know, kind of building off that after spring practice with these instant impact guys, we see it every year. There's players that you overlook and just break out of nowhere to surprise everybody. Who are some guys you are keeping an eye on to really shine and have their breakout seasons this year? Yeah, uh, I'll give you a couple guys for sure. Uh, one name that comes right to mind uh, first is uh, Zariah Beeson, uh, wide receiver. He's... Um, he's got that kind of that it factor and kind of that special ability. And, you know, coming from Duncanville, Texas, you know, uh, he's going to be a, you know, comes back as a freshman this year was one of Oregon state's more underrated gets. I think, you know, at one time uh, was, you know, a four-star recruit ended up being a three-star recruit in the rival system. And, you know, I think he could have been either or. Um, And after year one, you know, he was, you know, arguably the only true freshman for the Beavers that got a lot of burn, a lot of run last year. And it was because, you know, he made an instant impact and was able to, you know, get on the field and, you know, play a position of need 
and brought some size to that position. The Beavers kind of had some smaller guys and really came on strong as the year closed and had a really good game against Arizona State. And watching him this spring and seeing his, you know, adjustment from the end of the year to now, you know, he's prime for one of those big time, you know, leaps. And, you know, I, I've covered the Beavers, you know, for several years now, going back to, you know, the 13, 14 season. And, um, you know, he very rarely have I seen a receiver that's been able to make such a jump from year one to year two, at least as far as being like a guy that can just kind of dominate at times within the practice setting. And the last two, you know, receivers that come to mind for me to do that are Isaiah Hodgins, as I mentioned earlier, and Brandon Cooks. So a couple pretty good names that, you know, just kind of come to mind when I think about what he can do on the field. So he's a guy I'm really looking forward to seeing on offense this year with a bigger role. And then defensively, I'm just going to say the defensive line as a whole because they just need to perform this year. I mean, you talk about the secondary having some really nice depth, um, you know, with the guys that they brought in and then the linebackers being really, really set. You know, the Beavers brought in Keontae Shad, a defensive lineman from Minnesota uh, via the transfer portal. Could be a real instant impact guy. Um, a couple other guys, Simon Sandberg, uh, Tavis Shippen, James Rawls, uh, you know, several more. Bottom line, the defensive line just needs to perform this year. And that's kind of, you know, you could pick your hat out of, you know, several guys that kind of flash throughout spring. But, you know, more than anything, you just kind of want to see an uptick in production. Absolutely. And so given all that, everything we've talked about today kind of leads to this one. I look at the 2021 schedule. They really do have a tough road. I don't think that road trip to Purdue is going to be an easy win. And then you get arguably three of the top five teams in the Pac-12 on the road and USC, Colorado, and Oregon. It's going to be a tough road for the Beavers this year. For you, what is the ceiling and or floor for this 2021 team? You know, I think the ceiling um, would be, you know, somewhere around, you know, seven, eight wins. And the floor would probably be somewhere around, man, I'd like to say six or seven, but probably five to six. I just don't see the Beavers taking too much of a step back with how much talent they have, you know, and experience more than anything. It's not like they have a bunch of, <clears throat> excuse me, young guys out there. And I think in like a best case scenario, I think Oregon State, there's a, there is a path for them to go 3-0 and in, in preseason. You know, obviously, as you mentioned, Purdue, it's a tough road game. But, you know, as far as like Big Ten opponents go, Purdue's not Ohio State. They're not, you know, Michigan, where Oregon State's had to go in the last few years. They opened, you know, the 20, you know, Jonathan Smith opened his Oregon State career in the horseshoe. So, you know, that's about as tough as it gets. And, you know, you meant, and then before that, back in 15, they played at Michigan. So, Oregon State's no stranger to kind of opening in big environments and a bunch of, you know, the, those guys from the 18 squad that opened at Ohio State are still on the team. And, um, you know, it, it's that that's a real kind of test game because if Oregon State could come out and win that game, you're feeling really good about yourself and, you know, your prospects for the season. If they lose, you know, then you're kind of backing into those games against Hawaii and Idaho needing a win and then still needing to pick off, you know, four more games in conference to kind of get to that six-win plateau. If you can get those three wins in non-conference, you know, picking off three games in conference, much, much easier. So non-conference I think is going to be super, super important. And as you mentioned, a Purdue game is going to be tough, but Oregon State's got to lay it all on the line because that could be a huge game when it's all said and done. 
Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, without really until that Purdue team has needed Rondell Moore or David Bell to really step up. Well, Rondell's not there anymore. He's with the Cardinals. So it's going to be interesting to see what they look like. I think yeah. right now I favor Oregon State, but going on the road, like you said, against the Big Ten. Road's team. tough. Road's a tough exactly. way to open the year. It's tough. I mean, you know, I, I think back to a couple years ago when Oregon State opened at Minnesota, and it was kind of a very similar gauge and similar program track, you know, in the sense of where they were at the time. And, um, you know, I, I think it's it's a middle-tier team, right? So it's a middle-tier Big Ten team, and I think it's a good test, right? You know, you're talking about Oregon State potentially, you know, wanting to measure themselves, wanting to, you know, prove that they're better. Start on the road against a, you know, mid-major Big Ten team. That's 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 a good test. So it should be a dandy of a game. And then, you know, you scheduled yourself really well with Hawaii and Idaho, you know, being able to pretty much get two wins there as long as you take care of business. And as you mentioned, you kind of go down the schedule. USC, that's tough and, you know, it, you know, really tough to be 100% honest with you. But I feel like USC is a different team every week. It depends on, you know, what USC team shows up. It depends on, you know, whether USC is playing engaged, playing not engaged. and you know, sometimes getting them early in the year can make a difference. And, you know, you kind of go down, you know, Jonathan Smith, Washington, that connection. You know, I'm, I'm still waiting for Jonathan Smith to kind of get his revenge and get the first victory over Washington. Still got a lot of friends up there. And, you know, it goes on and on. I, I could see a path to six wins. And I think that more than anything, given that the Beavers haven't gone, you know, to the bowl, to, you know, gone bowling since 2013. It's been that long now. It, uh, you know, Beaver fans would take that. They would, for sure. Absolutely. Hey, that's a win. The goal, the minimal goal should always be to at least get to a bowl game. Um, that, that should be everyone's minimal goal. But last question here, man, we, you kind of, you kind of addressed it a little bit earlier when we were talking about, you know, that this national perception that, you know, the PAC 12 doesn't get a seat at the table. There's four playoff spots and the PAC 12 just seems to be that like, stepchild that like fifth seat and it's just like on the outside looking in like you didn't make the reservations to get into the restaurant why why do you think that's the case and you know we heard the new Pac-12 commissioner mentioned we have to focus on football what do you think the Pac-12 needs to do to force their way in and make sure they have a seat at the table and get the respect that the SECs and Big Tens get yeah, you know, to, to, to put it, there's, man, you and Zach, we might have to come back together because you and I could do a whole <laughs> podcast on what the Pac-12 could, would, and should have done, man, over, over the last, uh, you know, the Scott tenure. I mean, before I, before I dig into it, I do have to say, Larry Scott launched Pac-12 Network, which at the time was, you know, visionary. It was the only the Big Ten Network existed before it also brought Colorado and Utah into the fold. Granted, those things happened when I was still in high school. So, you know, it, it's been a minute. Since then, the conference has stagnated. And you asked why, you know, the Pac-12 doesn't feel that they have a seat at the table. It's a lack of investment in football. It's a lack of investment in, you know, hard, you know, legit getting TV eyes and making your product the best that it can be. It's empowering your university through resources to be able to, you know, be exposed and be on the highest stage. And, you know, you go back to like, you know, one thing as to why, you know, Pac-12 access, you mentioned Pac-12 plays, you know, what, kicking off at 1030 your guys' time? Yeah. And, you know, when it's that Pac-12 after dark game, 
I'm a firm believer that Christian McCaffrey did not, you know, win the Heisman because he played at 735 at night every single, you know, night for Stanford. You know, very rarely did they play. I mean, you know, you know, I, I thought he had an unbelievable year, but that's when it kind of first started to, come, you know, hit me that Pac-12 just not getting seen. And, you know, ever since then, it had kind of just kind of continued to spiral. I mean, obviously, you know, Pac-12's gotten, you know, Oregon in, gotten Washington in. But still, it, it's just been too far and few between. And I think it's been a lack of resources dedicated to those schools. I think it's been, you know, the Pac-12 losing out on a lot of their, you know, prime players. I mean, when schools like Notre Dame and Alabama can come into California and pluck the top quarterbacks that would be going to USC, UCLA, potentially Oregon, you know, potentially any, you know, top quarterback, you know, you know, it goes on and on running backs, you know, skill, you know, when those other teams started kind of coming into the PAC 12 recruiting bed with more of a, a distinct kind of, Hey, you might not win if you're in the PAC 12 and be on the highest stage, you come to, wherever, and you will, I think it kind of shifted the narrative and, and, you know, not for the better, not, not for the better, because, you know, I I think the Pac-12 takes some heat and, and, you know, sometimes rightfully so you have to be able to prove it on the field. And I get that you got to be able to, you know, schedule those marquee games and be able to, you know, play on those grand stages. And, you know, you talk about not getting your teeth kicked in when you do play on those stages as well. So, you know, as a whole, I think, you know, the new Pac-12 commissioner coming from MGM, fantastic hire. I mean, you talk about what the future of potentially sports is as a whole. Sports betting is a big part of it. So, you know, obviously, you know, we're talking college level and Pac-12. So we'll see what happens there. But with name, image, and likeness, you know, coming before all this right now, I've got a feeling those two things could kind of go hand in hand in the future. We'll see. I don't know, you know, all the exact specs of that, but, you know, his knowledge of kind of the media contacts and being able to, you know, monetize things like, you know, streaming, you know, you're talking about a guy who at one point was the CEO of Hulu. So he's got a very vast, you know, diverse, you know, background. And I think, you know, unlike Larry Scott, who with all due respect was thought he was bigger than he was. um, I think, you know, the new guy is going to come in and be able to kind of set a tone, you know, really kind of connect the PAC 12 to the member schools Um, you know, with any luck, move the Pac-12 offices out of San Francisco. So, you know, they're not paying millions of dollars in rent that could be going to many other, you know, proper things in the Pac-12, you know, goes on and on. I mean, you know, this is all Googleable things that you can read about the Pac-12 and how it's become in some ways, you know, the ire and and just the, the fodder of many of these, you know, other conferences. And, you know, I'll say this, the Pac-12, it doesn't get the respect it deserves. I understand, you know, why, you know, it does. It has the national perspective that it does, but I think it can be fixed and I think it can be fixed with winning. And, you know, obviously we're on a football podcast right now, but you saw how the perception started to flip with how well the Pac-12 played in March Madness this year. And, you know, you're talking about UCLA going to the final four, you're talking about Oregon State making a big run. And, you know, with how well they played this year, you kind of started to have some people be like, wow, okay, the Pac-12 isn't a pushover. And if there could be more of a consistent push where maybe instead of the Pac-12 having one shot, one team that has to go undefeated to make, you know, the the play-in, maybe in a given year there's three or four teams that are capable of getting up there. And that's what those big conferences have. 
then, you know, I'm not going to say Pac-12 is not a big conference, but every year it seems there are multiple member institutions, particularly in the SEC, that, you know, are there and, you know, are, you know, have a seat at the table, so to speak. So the Pac-12 gets like a, well, if you're good enough, we'll consider you kind of a thing. Not even a guarantee if a team, you know, does super well. So I think there's a lot to, that has to be fixed with that narrative. But I think the new commissioner was a fantastic hire. And I think, you know, you got to win. That's the biggest thing. You just got to have results on the field and you got to win. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, hey, I mean, I've heard a lot of people. I've been reading a lot of stuff about, you know, things to fix the Pac-12. It really interests me because on this podcast, we're big on like the parody of college football. That's our big thing is like there's more parody than like you're giving it credit for. It's not just Alabama and Clemson. It, there's a lot of teams that can compete. And a lot of people blame the Oregon States, the Arizona States, for knocking off Oregon on years where Oregon's supposed to be really good. Um, and I do appreciate the March Madness example because you won me my bracket this year. I was the only person in my oh, bracket. I picked Oregon State to get, get a little far. Man. So I appreciate well, you, y'all uh, for that. Did you get, pick them to the uh, Elite Eight or did you pick them to the uh, Sweet I 16? I picked, I picked him to the Sweet 16. Nice. And, nice. That, and I cut it off there because I got a little nervous. I was like, I haven't watched a lot of Oregon State. Like, I don't know if yeah. they can get to the Elite Eight. That's really far for, what was it, a, a 13 seed? A 12, 12 seed. 12 yeah. seed. And, and, yeah, I mean, you know, you just, you know, you go back to, like, you know, that itself. And, and, and you mentioned it, just, you know, exposure, right? And, you know, who doesn't fill out a bracket, right? And, and that's the thing is it's like you're talking – you know, exposure and, you know, all these, you know, eyeballs now see Oregon State. I mean, it, it's just in more ways than not, you know, that's that's what, you know, the Pac-12 needs to do as a whole. You know, the Pac-12 had so many eyeballs in terms of, you know, wow, there are a lot of Pac-12 teams that, you know, keep advancing here in the bracket. And if, you know, you could get more Pac-12 teams that were up near that 9-10 win plateau, you know, I think it would, you know, elevate the level of the conference. But as you mentioned, we've just got a tendency to beat up on each other, man. And nope. I don't know what you can do about that other than just to say that there's just some great competition. And every now and again, when a team is like one win away from the playoff, the other team just musters up just something, man. It, 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 you're right. It, it has happened several times. And each time it's, it's still just, just as humorous as it, as it was the first time. You'll also get an unfair rap, though, because Alabama can get beat by Ole Miss. And it's, man, Ole Miss is just better than we think. But then when Oregon gets beat by you guys or got beat by Arizona State, uh, what was it, 2019, when they're undefeated, everyone's like, oh, Oregon's just overrated. I was like, what if Arizona State and Oregon State were just, are just better than you think? Like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, totally. Totally. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was about to say, we just got to shift the perception, man. We got to, we just got to start being fair to those out West teams because Ole Miss just isn't always perpetually underrated. Some, sometimes, you know, Alabama slipped up. And so I think, we should, I think Oregon and USC and Washington, whoever should get that same kind of leeway. I, I totally agree. And, and, you know, like, I mean, like I said, as, as a native West Coast guy, I, I just got to say, Pac-12 ain't all bad, man. We got sunshine. We got no humidity. I mean, it's pretty good life out here. <laughs> just, just, just kidding. But no, it's, it's, you know, it's one of those things where you know the conference as a whole just needs to elevate their image, and you do that, like I said, through exposure, getting you know your games 
getting more Pac-12 teams in the big noon kickoff, right? Getting more Pac-12 teams in prime time. You know, you know. Am I saying that 7:30 games need to go away? No. There's 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 times when a 7:30 game is applicable. Times when in a 7:30 game people like late night games. But when you're talking about putting a marquee game in the late window, like you know, that's something that needs to be looked at simply for the fact that there are potentially eyeballs across the nation that might want to, you know, watch. I mean, you know, there might be those people that stay up till one in the morning watching West Coast football if it was a good enough <laughs> product, right? So sometimes those games can be, you know, great. And I love the, you know, got to coin the, the hashtag, hashtag Pac-12 after dark, man. It, right. is, it is real and it can't go away because it can be special. But at the same token, Pac-12 after dark can also be ugly sometimes too. So, That's- you know, I, I think – just overall up in the brand of the, you know, uh, of the conference piece by piece, that's going to be, you know, the next commissioner's, you know, biggest to-do list. And if he does that, I think everything will kind of fall in process and trickle down from there. Absolutely. I think it's a shame that people actually miss that. Um, who was it? You, it was UCLA and I think Arizona state. So it's like the 35 to three comeback or whatever, oh, yes. where they went, that, that was just a berserk game, and no one saw it. I was like, yeah. "How y'all all went to sleep?" And I get it; it was like thirty-five to thirty. Yep. But you missed probably the greatest game of the season. But man, yep. I appreciate, I definitely appreciate you being on here, man. I kept you way past, <laughs> um, you know, the usual. But I appreciate you, you know, chopping up with me about Oregon State, the Pac-12, and everything. We'll definitely have to have you back on to talk about, you know, just the Pac-12 in general. But where can our listeners find you? Everything you do for Oregon State, anything you want to plug to our listeners, this time is yours. Uh, absolutely. Appreciate you having me on, Zach. Uh, check out my Twitter at B underscore slot, S-L-A-U-G-H-T. And then make sure to check on uh, beaversedge.com, place to be for Oregon State coverage. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's unbeatable as far as what we're able to bring, as far as team coverage, recruiting content and analysis. It's it's a place to be. So, uh, again, appreciate uh, you having me on, Zach. Look forward to it. And uh, definitely happy to talk some ball with you, man. It was a fun conversation. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, uh, that, that was one. That was easily one of the best ones we've had. That was a blast. But, guys, make sure to go check out everything Brendan does. I promise you, Rivals is worth every bit of your time. That is one of the top sites out there, man. Make sure to go check out that rival site for Oregon State. But, guys, We will be back with some more episodes, as y'all know, the two-minute drill Monday through Friday. We got some big announcements coming. I'm pretty sure when this is out, we've already announced it. So we will have Quincy Casey, Jackson State quarterback, transfer to Alabama A&M on the show to talk his transfer and everything else. And we also are going to have our guy Scotty from Allscript talking about SWAC football coverage very soon. More announcements to come soon. But for Brendan, myself, and the Blue Bloods guys, we are out.